This session is from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. those who are uh, perhaps even hostile uh, to us for, uh, for holding the line. Uh, we pray that you'll give to us grace in all of these things. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, we have a, a lot of material to cover, and I wanted to uh, give us a little bit of uh, background here. Uh, you may have heard of Cy Rogers, who, uh, when he was a practicing homosexual, Uh, Before he became a believer, he said, Christians tried to reach out to me. However, they made a classic mistake. They tried to win a moral argument with me. Tried to prove the point. Well, what does the Bible says this about homosexuality? They tried to to push this point. And he had had uh, an inkling that these inclinations were wrong. And he is aware of what God had to say about it. He says, I believed in God and his son, Jesus Christ, but I also believe that God hated people like me. I wonder where I picked that up. And this is perhaps a place where many of us in our churches find ourselves trying to win the argument with someone. And of course, Jesus himself came to those who were sinners, and he was known as the friend of sinners. And I hope that before all things, we'll be known as those who love people in the gay community. How many of you have gay relatives, friends? And I think that once you come into contact with them, and you have people kept it quiet before, uh, wasn't, uh, people didn't come out of the closet, uh, and, but now we're dealing with this sort of a thing in our culture. Uh, in fact, just assume that we have lost the cultural battle here and ask the question, how can we then move forward in love and grace and modeling what marriage looks like, what sexuality looks like? Just start there. Doesn't mean that you can't engage in a public debate and give public reasons for why there are problems with homosexuality, why there are problems with transsexualism. But there's a lot of water under the bridge already. And a lot of people simply take for granted that we who hold an orthodox understanding are perhaps behind the times, that we are bigoted or whatever. How can we build bridges with those who think differently than we do, just on a personal level? Now, I write in this area, I write and edit uh, books that deal with these sorts of topics. So it's not as though I'm afraid to defend this publicly and to offer reasons for why the way that God has made things from the beginning is the way that it should be, that this is the norm, that marriage is not a construct, that there's an essence to marriage and sexuality. Uh, But I'm I'm just thinking in terms of how we relate personally in this area. Uh, So what I want to do, I'll talk about transsexualism, but I want to briefly look at some, uh, some of these points, scripture and homosexuality, science, the church, and society. And what I want to highlight here is that some of the points that are made with regard to homosexuality also carry over into transsexualism. So it's not as though it's just a tidy compartmentalized set of arguments and and reasons and rationales 
uh, there's a lot of carryover. So keep that in mind. And hopefully as we walk through, and we'll spend most of our time in the homosexuality issue, but, but there is a lot of application for, this, for the transsexual uh, issue as well. Uh, so uh, we'll hear a few areas if you want to look. Um, I have three chapters in a book, When God Goes to Starbucks, which uh, has, has, deals with the biblical, the scientific, and also the pastoral. I uh, also cover that in Biblical Ethics, and there's a larger book to which I contributed, uh, The Complete Christian Guide to Understanding Homosexuality, a very good practical guide of someone who comes from a homosexual background. Uh, he wrote a book called Loving Homosexuals as Jesus Would. Uh, so a very fair-minded, very sympathetic uh, book, you know, orthodox, but also coming from that sort of a background where he's also defending those in the gay community who are being mistreated or misunderstood, or they're just bad arguments directed toward them, and so he's trying to set those things straight. For example, that homosexuality is a choice. Uh, no, Same-sex attraction is not a choice, typically. Uh, it is a matter of just nurture and how a person grows up, and they wish they could be, you know, have different feelings, but they don't. What, how do we deal with that? So, so don't say, well, that's just a choice. Well, acting on it is a choice, just as it is with heterosexual uh, sexual attraction. So those are some things that we need to, uh, to deal squarely with. And so Chad Thompson's book is very helpful on that. Just to say a few things about the scriptures and homosexuality. The biblical evidence is negative wherever we come across it. Uh, that there is any, in fact, any sexual expression, heterosexual, homosexual, uh, is, outside of the male-female marriage bond, the created order, is, uh, is, goes against the, the will of God and his design. Uh, so if you wanted to summarize it, God's ideal, or even Jesus articulated it, of course, in the New Testament, Matthew 5 and 19, uh, God's ideal is one man and one woman as one flesh for one lifetime. So people say, well, what is your view on this? Well, I take the Jesus view. One man, one woman as one flesh for one lifetime. And so there is a certain essence to marriage. It's, there's a complementarity. There is exclusivity. Uh, it's not like you're joining a tennis club or something like that. Uh, you're, uh, you're, you're bonded to one person. Uh, conjugality, the two shall become one flesh. And permanency, uh, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And keep in mind that the scripture emphasizes not uh, emphasizes not, say, homosexual attraction or orientation. It, the ancient world did not have a category for that. It emphasized behavior. And I think it's important for us to emphasize that, too. What do you do with those desires? Uh, do you live in conformity to the will of God? Do you, uh, do you seek to live out his will uh, you know, as he has laid out? Or will you simply act on whatever impulse or whatever desire you have? And where do I find my fulfillment? We'll talk about that briefly in terms of identity. Where do I find my identity? Uh, there are biblical texts related to homosexuality, and they're rooted in creation. Some people say, oh, there's just six texts related to homosexuality. No, there's, a, there's an entire backdrop in terms of understanding sexuality, and that's the way that God made things from the very beginning, male and female. Uh, God brought, you know, Genesis 2.24, that's the beginning point of marriage. Uh, for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother, will cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So we need to look at the bigger picture, the bigger framework, rather than just saying, oh, just a few texts, 
that's a kind of a, a line that's commonly used. We need to be able to respond that there's a larger framework uh, that we need to consider. And Jesus affirms it in the New Testament uh, very thoroughly. Uh, Genesis 19 and Judges 19, easily remember those very similar uh, passages uh, where you know, Lot is in Sodom. And of course, the, the, in Judges 19, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Benjamites in Gibeah who are acting uh, in a grossly immoral way. Uh, and, uh, and so those are key texts. Uh, we can also note that ancient Jewish literature connected Sodom and homosexual, homosexual activity or rape. Um, that, uh, that the New Testament refers to the sensual conduct of unprincipled men in Sodom. Uh, who, you know, and it so it talks about, the, you know, or those who indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, Jude 7. Uh, so this isn't just a lack of hospitality in the ancient world. Uh, this was, there's something more to it than that. There's something about a, uh, a wrong, uh, wrongly directed sexual desires. <clears throat> Uh, a key text people will use, a friend of mine, the late, uh, the late Anthony Falzerano, came out of a uh, you know, homosexual uh, way of life, um, and he, uh, he became a believer, and uh, he wrote a book uh, called uh, Such Were Some of You. So this passage goes on to say, such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. And it includes those who engage in sexual activity. So... Uh, the, these, are the, these practices will prevent you from entering the kingdom of God. And uh, you may have heard of Matthew Vines, who basically takes a lot of old liberal arguments and rehashes them for a more modern audience. But it's not, he's not saying anything new, but, uh, but he defends the, the possibility that you can have a committed homosexual relationship, sexual relationship, uh, in a, a monogamous way, uh, that you that the scripture doesn't con- doesn't condemn loving, committed homosexual relationships. So he mentions in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20:13 that these te- <clears throat> these texts are uh, are basically just like shrimp and pork are prohibited in the Old Testament. All, you know, clothing laws those are prohibited in the law of Moses. These these. Prohibitions against homosexuality, that's just for back then, for the people of Israel, not for uh, something that is permanent. Now, you can, it, you can relativize a lot of these things, but you've got to come to terms with the fact that, one, there is a created order. Secondly, certain things like murder and adultery are still wrong, regardless of shrimp and pork being for a time uh, prohibited for the people of Israel. And also, Paul uses the precise words from the Greek uh, translation of Leviticus 18 and 20 and utilizes them in 1 Corinthians and also 1 Timothy, that these terms are utilized, drawn from this text on, uh, on sexual, uh, you know, inappropriate sexual behavior, immoral sexual behavior that the Canaanites practiced. And so uh, Paul is utilizing this, taking his cues from Leviticus 18 and 20. Another scholar, Robin Scroggs, uh, claims that scripture doesn't condemn, like Matthew Vines, doesn't condemn committed same-sex sexual relations. Um, and he talks about the Paul's reference to Molochos, or soft, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, has pederasty in mind, the exploitative relationships of adult males with young boys, 
And the second one refers to an active sexual partner who exploits or hires a weaker partner, probably a young man or boy. And so these things are condemned, but not loving, committed homosexual relationships. Uh, the problem with this sort of an understanding, it's commonly uh, articulated that way, but, uh, but Paul could have used that term, pederasty, of, of, a, of an adult male with a young uh, boy or a young man. Uh, but, but again, even if that's what Paul is prohibiting, it wouldn't fit in with what Paul is saying in Romans 1 of men with men and women with women. Uh, Paul is speaking against any homosexual activity. Uh, ironically, in the ancient world, Paul Gardner writes in his commentary in 1 Corinthians, he says, the effeminate male who dresses and behaves like a woman was universally condemned in Greek literature, and pederasty is usually upheld as a loving relationship in some writings, was, and it was not universally regarded as either wrong or exploitative. So interesting how, uh, how there's that kind of a turning of the tables from the way things were understood back then. Uh, Romans 1, probably familiar with this passage. Uh, and some people will say that, some, that God gave people over you know, to these passions, men and women. Uh, they exchanged their natural function for the engaging in unnatural, indecent acts. And some people say, well, if you're same-sex attracted, then don't, don't have an opposite-sex attraction relationship. Uh, you know, it, God made you this way, and so therefore you ought to live in light of your inclination or your orientation. And so some people will, trans, will understand it that way, which of course is uh, not in keeping with how the ancient world understood these things. They didn't have a category for orientation or, uh, you know, or you know, inclination. Uh, it was just the acts that were emphasized. And of course, when Paul talks about this going against nature, uh, he's talking about the way things were ordered at creation. Paul is reflecting back on this, uh, the, the way that God had ordered things from creation. First um, Timothy chapter 9, again, that same term is used, drawn from uh, Leviticus uh, 18 and 20. Uh, let me... Let me just say something uh, briefly here, and, and again, these, this term of the effeminate and the homosexual, this is referring to the active and the passive partners in the relationship. Uh, won't go into a lot of detail here, but, uh, but some people also appeal to Ruth and Naomi or Jonathan and David who embrace and kiss and weep with each other and so forth. Is this homosexual love? And Richard Hayes from right here, uh, you know, Duke University, uh, calls such stretches exegetical or interpretive curiosities. That aren't, that aren't taken seriously by biblical scholars. He says these examples can only be judged pathetic efforts at constructing biblical warrant for homosexual practice where none exists. That's just a real stretch. If you're looking for biblical justification, you're not going to find it by appealing to these examples. I mean, some people say, well, Abraham Lincoln, he was gay because he shared the same bed uh, you know, at, a, you know, at, a, at a lodge with, with, with someone. Well, that's what they did back then. You're a circuit rider, you're sleeping, you're sharing beds with other people, they're male, and that's typically what you did. But again, to say, well, that must have been gay or that must have been homosexual love, again, just really misplaced arguments here. Um, again, regarding transsexuality, uh, Jesus doesn't see that those who are born eunuchs upsets the sexual binary of creation, that God made us male and female from the beginning, though there could be certain birth defects, certain things that are certain anomalies. Uh, but that doesn't therefore erode the distinction between male and female, the way that God made things at the beginning. So Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew uh, 19. Uh, if, you're, if you're interested in looking up virtually any text, any argument on this issue, Robert Gagnon 
at Houston Baptist University has a website and you can look up a treasure trove of information on this. He debates people who take a different viewpoint and so forth, but really encourage you to look at this. He also talks about transsexuality as well, so I think you'll find some great material here. A friend of mine, Julie Hamilton, uh, she is a PhD in psychology and has her own family practice, but uh, she has a website called Homosexuality 101. And there's this brief 17-minute video on this. If you want to look it up, she has a brother who is gay. And so she really speaks with passion about this, with concern, pastoral care. Uh, but she also talks about a lot of the cultural influences, a lot of the breakdowns in relationship of maybe same-sex parents uh, where there is not a, a point of connection or same-sex peers where there just is not this affirmation. So that gets translated to a sexual expression when there hasn't been that kind of a same-sex bonding early on in a non-sexual way. And so, you know, or women who have just experienced violence and so they, or, or you know, there's an unsafe male in their household or family, you know, relative. And if they think about getting close sexually later on to somebody, they're not thinking about males. They're, they don't want, they want to stay away from people who are, who are going to be harming them, who are going to be uh, exploiting them and so forth. So, so there, there can be that kind of a background as well, but typically that is not explored. It's just, there's got to be a gay gene out there somewhere that inclines people in this direction. When there's a whole host of issues related to why people can be same-sex attracted, a lot of influences, they don't guarantee that, that you'll end up that way, but there are a lot of influences that, that incline people toward that, uh, in, in that direction. So Robert Gagnon is also, you know, Gagnon and also Julie Hamilton, Homosexuality 101 uh, would be good, good places to start. What's interesting is that Biblical, you know, there, there are a lot of liberal scholars who when they look at the New Testament and the, the Bible in general, they say, there is no justification here. They would love to have justification for same-sex relationships. A lot of them are practicing homosexuals, but they can't find any. In fact, they're saying it's really a lame and pathetic effort like Matthew Vines and so forth to try to find biblical justification for committed same-sex relationships. Uh, and so Daniel Villa, who had a debate with Robert Gagnon, says that, uh, that in Scripture, this is an absolute prohibition that the Scripture condemns homosexual behavior unconditionally and absolutely. Um, and that he says that, you know, that Paul's texts do not support this limitation of male homosexuality to pederasty and so forth. And so, he, so there are arguments after arguments uh, that are being made to, uh, to oppose this sort of a easy, glib assumption that, oh, the Bible can accommodate these things. You know, professor after professor, scholar after scholar, uh, you know, will we'll acknowledge this now. Uh, professor Gagnon and I are in substantial agreement that the biblical text that deals specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. Again, this is someone who's arguing from a pro-gay viewpoint, a, you know, some, a theological viewpoint. Uh, Lewis Crompton, uh, Emeritus Professor, University of Nebraska, argues, again, that, uh, that this is, that Paul, you know, that Paul or any other Jewish work would not accept the permissibility of same-sex relations under any circumstance. Uh, Bernadette Bruton, uh, you know, she, she writes that uh, the sources on, well, she goes on to say uh, that, uh, you, that if the dehumanizing aspects of pederasty motivated Paul to condemn sexual relations, then why did he condemn, condemn relations between females in the same sentence, Romans 1.27? Uh, you know, so, so again, it goes on, one, one person after another, uh, William Schadel, uh, Marty Nissenen, uh, University of Helsinki, uh, Abraham Smith, uh, the, you know, going on to say <clears throat> that these are not appropriate texts to use to support 
uh, same-sex you know, relationships. Uh, these are condemned in Scripture. Uh, Walter Wink, a late theologian, uh, commends Gagnon for dealing with every biblical text even remotely relevant to this theme. Um, and so he's saying, simply put, the Bible is negative towards same-sex behavior, and there's no getting around it. Again, liberal theologians recognizing this point. Um, Pim Pronk, uh, whenever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. Uh, William Loder has done perhaps the most significant amount of work on sexuality in early Judaism and early Christianity, uh, notes these sorts of things, that, uh, that, this, you know, that, Paul, you know, that Paul condemns all such sexual attitudes and desires without differentiation, anything that is outside of that marriage bond. So I can keep going. Luke Timothy Johnson at uh, Emory University, uh, Candler School of Theology. Uh, so the Bible nowhere speaks positively or neutrally about same-sex love, etc. So those are some things that we ought to come to terms with when people are utilizing these arguments and saying, oh, the Bible can accommodate this. What about science and homosexuality? Again, the same thing is true about the transgender issue that as we look at the factors that there, are, there is human brokenness and confusion and of course, our culture feeds that kind of sexual confusion. And so, as I mentioned before, uh, there can be factors of upbringing, of acceptance or rejection of same-sex peers, cultural messages, experimentation, uh, biological or temperamental considerations. So maybe someone is more inclined toward art or music uh, or poetry as a boy, but yet he gets teased and, you know, and mocked because he's queer or gay and he, you know, he's temperamentally a certain way, just inclined in a certain way, but building on that sort of a thing, on that biological thing, there can be the addition of failure to connect with same-sex peers and so forth, and this person thinks, well, maybe I am gay. And so a number of cultural messages, peer pressure, etc., that can factor in here. Uh, the New Atlantis, you can actually look this up online, you can read the full uh, article and also the executive summary of this piece, but this is a, a sexuality and gender study that came out of Johns Hopkins University, Paul Hugh, Paul McHugh, who was leading the, the charge in this study, uh, basically said that the idea that people are born that way is simply not supported by scientific evidence, and the same thing goes with the trans community, uh, that those who say, well, I'm just, a, I'm just born this way, and even as you think about it, well, why are people, why do people think that they're born that way? Well, maybe they were attracted to playing with, you know, boy was attracted to playing with dolls or like the color pink or glitter or whatever. Well, these are cultural things. These are not inherently biological. These aren't rooted in creation. There could be a lot of cultural things that pass for, you know, blue is male, pink is female, which is a fairly late uh, cultural understanding, I think, from the 1950s. So it's not as though these things have been around for a long time. And so we have to be careful about it, simply assigning, oh, that's, that's, that is, you know, feminine, that is associated with, with the female uh, universally. No, it's, it's just a, often a cultural sort of thing. So we need to bear with that as well and keep in mind that a lot of the things that pass for, oh, that's, you know, love, you know, that person thinks she's, you know, that guy thinks he's a female may just simply be attracted to certain things that are just cultural and just the person has those preferences, but, uh, but, but, not necessarily, but not rooted in biology. And that's what this New Atlantis article is, is stating. 
that, in fact, he put a stop to the first gender reassignment surgery at Johns Hopkins University, uh, that program, because there is no scientific justification for transgender identity. Let me just say something about this here as we consider some of the challenges to our, within our own setting. I'm reminded of a, an episode uh, in ER where there is a healthy man who walks into a doctor's office and the doctor says, well, what can I do for you? He said, I want to have my leg amputated. He said, well, why do you want to do that? You're perfectly healthy. He says, well, I'm a one-legged man inside a two-legged man's body. You know, we say, well, wow, that, you know, that's, that's crazy. And a friend of mine, Frank Beckwith, who teaches at Baylor University in his ethics classes, he'll show this video clip, and the students will say, that's ridiculous. He says, why is it that with every other part of the body, you know, your hands, your feet, your nose, your eyes, you know what they're for, but when it comes to the sexual organ, all of a sudden, everybody says, oh, that's not necessarily for that, reproduction. No, it could be anything. Why are we... So it's very interesting that whatever part of the body you're talking about, except the sexual organs, oh, they, see, see, they have a purpose, they have a function. But sexual organs, no, that could go anyway. There, you could be fluid on that. No, the, the, the best basis for, you know, the, kind of the, your baseline for starting is to think about what kind of a body did I come in? And maybe if I think differently about my body, maybe that's an issue about my soul rather than my body. Maybe there's some things, there's some confusion, there's been, there have been some bad role models, there's been, there have been all sorts of influences that have really maybe even denigrated who I am because I came, happened to come in a female body and so I don't want to have anything to do with femininity, with the female, uh, because I've seen people abuse, pay, people take advantage of, people exploit, people mock, and so I'd rather be on the other side and not be subject to those sorts of experiences. And I've known people who have had those very experiences, and those are the reasons they've cited. Um, again, longitudinal studies that, you know, there could be some fluidity. But, but again, when it comes to things like puberty blockers and so forth, I mean, allowing kids to have, it's in, in, in California and other places, Parents aren't told what's going on with their kids, and sometimes they're allowed, kids are allowed to have access to puberty blockers to, uh, to go and come down a pathway toward surgery, eventually, uh, you know, transitioning from one sex to another biologically, so sex reassignment surgery, and their parents don't even know about what's going on. And so in this sort of a setting, parents feel like they're their freedoms are being ripped out, that they can't be parents anymore or have any input in their lives. It's, it, it's better in the hands of teachers and school administrators. And uh, there's so many tragic stories. I mean, think about it. Boys who are being, who want to transition into becoming girls, they're getting treatment that's been used for castrating rapists in, you know, in, in prison you know, as part of the punishment. You know, that, they're, they're, they're basically getting chemically treated to, to be castrated. And a lot of them don't even, haven't even figured out their own sexuality. There is this understanding that sexuality is fluid uh, for, many, for a number of people, I think all the more in a sexually confused age. And so people are going to be much more unclear. But things often shake out. It's, there's a general correspondence between your body and where you end up in terms of your own sexual understanding. So, uh, so again, there's such a precipitous jump to just, you know, oh, do you feel that way? You must be the opposite of the way you were born. 
And, and so our society is really reinforcing that legislation is, you know, comes to often comes down hard in certain states against those who resist saying, this is how you're born. This is, the, this is who you are. You're female or you're male. Um, uh, here, yeah, here's, well, let me just skip ahead a little bit here. I'm going to, here, here's uh, Alexander Proust who talks about this. Uh, he's a Christian philosopher. He says, one striking thing about intercourse between a man and a woman is that it involves not just a random pair of organs in the way that a finger and an ear would be matched in cooperating sets of organs. These organs are matched not simply for geometric reasons, one set fitting with the other, since an ear and a finger could fit, too. Rather, the sets of organs are functionally matched. They're organs that are working together in intercourse, but it not only makes sense to talk of two systems working together when there's a good that the systems are working together for. What is this goal? Well, if we had to explain to a Martian which organs are involved in intercourse, I think we pretty quickly have to say that the organs involved are the reproductive organs. And the goal of their mutual biological striving, which defines the way in which they are matched, is reproduction. Two systems independent of each other, but yet when matched together in a sexual act, you, th th there's this dependency, this mutual dependency upon one another to, for the next generation to continue. Um, we can also talk about how there are benefits across the, uh, you, know, you know, from the, from a sociological point of view. Uh, as uh, Mark Regnerus has, has documented at the University of Texas at Austin, that the traditional two-parent family is far more beneficial to society than alternative family structure. So we can talk about that dimension as well, and you can look up the work of Mark Regnerus as he documents this from a sociological point of view, uh, that compared to you know, children from married, intact, father, mother homes, children raised in same-sex homes are far more likely to experience poor educational uh, attainment, happiness, there's more you know, impulsive behavior, uh, there's greater uh, need for counseling, mental health therapy, and so forth. Uh, depression, thought of you know, suicidal ideation, uh, identifying as bisexual, lesbian, or gay, uh, you know, having male or female lesbian, uh, you know, female on female sex partners, uh, you know, and, and so forth. So there are these all sorts of troubles that go along with the uh, you know with being brought up by gay or lesbian parents. Uh, now I'm not saying that. You know, I mean, my wife and I were involved in foster care and so we we went to when we were living in Georgia and so we met gay couples and they were allowed to to adopt and so forth and I'm and when it comes to gay couples I don't think that their say visitation rights in hospitals should be taken away or inheritance rights and so forth I think those are perfectly appropriate but I, but again we can also argue that when it comes to bringing up children this from a sociological point of view, statistical point of view, has proven to be a, an, an inferior arrangement. Not all marriage relationships, sorry, not all unions, not all, uh, not all family, you know, parenting relationships, parenting uh, roles are, are equal in terms of producing intact, uh, you know, children, you know, well-balanced well children. If you're a single parent, that's, that's, that's less than ideal than a two-parent home. And, and you know, of, a, of a male and female. There may be some benefits, of course, of love and so forth, but when it comes to the broader statistical analysis, uh, you know, male and female, father and mother, is much more conducive to, uh, to family flourishing. Um, I'm gonna have to, uh, to move along here. So I talked about some of these points, acknowledging that ours is a now minority position, and we may even face discrimination for taking these positions that we do. Uh, that there is this change in the cultural landscape uh, presents opportunities. So rather than being cynical 
uh, or uh, resigned or reactionary or defensive, being joyful and constructive. How can we make an impact? Uh, when we, you know, we lived in a, uh, we live in a neighborhood where we, there had been a lesbian couple and our son, uh, Jonathan, would be befriended a young boy who was adopted by this lesbian couple and he was just a great role model for this boy. And we, we did things with them. We helped this, after the couple broke up, we helped this uh, one woman, uh, you know, who was remaining behind in the neighborhood, helped her to move from one place to another. All the co-cans, I mean, it's nice to have six kids so you can really have a moving crew there. And we helped her to move across town. And basically, we were the ones who helped out of the neighborhood uh, to, to get her from one place to another, making multiple trips starting at nine and ending at 11 now. I'm not touting, you know, yeah, great, you know, good, good for the co-cans. But what I'm saying here is that this was an opportunity to show the love of Christ. It actually led to a great conversation over lunch. We had pizza together, and, and it was a great opportunity to talk about the love of Christ. We even talked about homosexuality. And it was just a great opportunity, but we had built credibility before the, the conversation started, and it was really wonderful. Uh, they, the, you know, this woman knew that we loved her, we accepted her, we embraced her, didn't agree with her lifestyle, but we, we certainly uh, wanted to show her the love of Christ. Uh, we're to model sexual purity as in godly marriages and family life, uh, and also as singles, uh, that we need to do that as well. Um, so show homosexuals what love looks like, uh, like Chick-fil-A's uh, CEO, Dan Cathy, who invited a gay activist, Shane Windemeyer, to his home and built a friendship after Shane had been you know, writing nasty things about Chick-fil-A on his website, on his blog posts. And then Dan Cathy contacted him and said, hey, let's get together. And they became friends and shared you know, Thanksgiving together and so forth. So it was really a, a wonderful point of connection. Uh, so tell good and be better or tru more truthful stories. Uh, that uh, Let me just kind of jump. I can, I'm going to jump here too. That a lot of times people will, I'm going to yeah, tell the truth about homosexuality. Uh, for one thing, don't say that homosexuality is a choice. Be careful about that. That, as I said before, there are some of those inclinations that people have that they don't have control over. Uh, and keep in mind, too, that there are wonderful stories that people tell uh, who have come out of a gay relationship and now have you know, found Christ and that they're flourishing in their new life. And again, it can be a degree. Sometimes people still continue to be same-sex attracted. Things don't change or change much. That's the way it is in a fallen world. But some people do find that they have changed, and, you know, but they can, st can still be faithful. Uh, when my wife and I were in Oxford for a sabbatical in 2017, and we've been back since, uh, we attended a church called St. Ebb's Church, and Vaughn Roberts, who is the rector, the pastor there, he is same-sex attracted, but preaches the traditional understanding of marriage, the biblical understanding of marriage, and this has really been a point of connection to people in the broader community, that someone who is same-sex attracted is in ministry, doing faithful work, there's accountability and so forth, uh, love for the Lord, uh, solid, really top-flight uh, expository preaching. So, so there are also opportunities within the church to affirm that within the community, that someone may be same-sex attracted, but they can still serve faithfully within the body of Christ. Um, let me just say a few things. I've got uh, five more minutes, and I don't think we'll be able to take time for, uh, for questions here. But you know, when it comes to transgenderism, let me just say a, a few brief things. I don't have to go through. I've got 119 slides here. So hopefully I laid a little bit of groundwork. 
but wanted to give you some, some material there. If you're interested in reading more about this, uh, there's a, a helpful book by Ryan Anderson, uh, When Harry Became Sally, and unpacks some of the key arguments and myths related to, the tra to transgenderism. And of course, the, uh, you know, when it comes to the, uh, you know, this notion of medical support for transgenderism, it's really not, there's no scientific basis for this as we've seen, but rather it's, it's driven by ideology. You'll see that over and over again. So I'm gonna have to uh, kind of hit the main points. There's a new Atlantis there. Um, the the uh, idea that the gender identity is innate fixed property of human beings that's independent of biological sex is not supported by the scientific evidence. <clears throat> there are certain, um, yeah, I'll just have to skip here. The ideology of transgender activists is full of contradictions and built on the shaky subjective foundations of feelings. The way that I feel, that is what is ultimate. Rather than the more stable starting point, namely how I came to this world with my body, uh, that is a much more uh, defined, clear, concrete baseline. Uh, that, uh, you know, we can also talk about, here's another point, the media tends to tout the transition success stories but ignores the horror stories that come out. In fact, there are groups of people who are detransitioning because they have been so harmed by this. And there are kids, young teenagers, who testify that once they said, well, maybe, you know, a boy who grows up says, maybe I'm a girl, once they start to go down that road, it's like there's no stopping. There is no saying, well, have you thought about this? Have you reconsidered? Have you, maybe this is just a time that you need to process? No, you are railroaded down a certain pathway towards sex reassignment surgery, and there's no real liberty given to these who are just thinking them through. It's really, thinking these things through, it's really ideologically driven. And there are horror stories that back this up. Um, uh, we can, of course, talk about, you know, think about female sports being undermined too. Uh, that ironically, uh, wanting to, the, the goal to include people ends up excluding females, those who identify, uh, males who identify as females, they end up surpassing because their, their bodies, <laughs> uh, not, their, not, their, not their interior, their bodies are actually engaged in the competition. <laughs> Uh, and so they're able to, you know, they have more muscle mass, they're able to, to surpass women, uh, generally speaking, in, in these competitions. And so women are being edged out of female athletics because of males identifying as females. And uh, not to mention being made to feel uncomfortable in their own locker rooms uh, or women uh, made to feel unsafe in their own restrooms and so forth. So there are all sorts of uh, troubles. Interestingly, I, I, my father came from Ukraine and uh, right now in this war, we'll be talking about this a little bit tomorrow in the plenary session, but uh, some, uh, some men have been identifying as women so that they didn't have to, wouldn't have to fight, but the Ukrainian government wasn't buying it. Uh, so, uh, you know, but, but again, something here that we've talked about how parents' rights are being ignored too, that it's a common complaint that they don't have any say on what is going on in terms of how their children are educated. Uh, when our kids, were, our kids went to public school, I don't know that we do public school you know, at this stage, uh, if we had to, but, uh, but when our kids were in public school, we pulled them out of sex education classes because we wanted to be the ones who were directing them rather than teachers who did not have a biblical worldview, uh, did not have a view of, of Christian sexuality. Here's an example of a, of a young uh, you know, girl who identified as a, as a boy, and her mother could not get a lawyer in California, could not stand up to the social services system, 
uh, and this, uh, this, you know, the gender confusion eventually uh, led to her, her you know, becoming more and more unhappy, uh, and in the end she committed suicide. And so you can, you can see Abby Martinez's YouTube videos and hear the story and the pain of what she had to go through in these, you know, as her, her daughter identified as a male and went through all of the, uh, you know, kind of behind her back to, uh, to get uh, to, to be affirmed in this, uh, this feeling of being male uh, and so forth. So we can, we, you know, there are others uh, as well, uh, Helena Kirshner, who talked about detransitioning. And you see, so the, the pressure that is felt and, uh, and the pain that people go through, there's just a lot more that we could say, but I think we are, uh, we are at 2.15, so we're out of time. Uh, let, you know, let me just say thanks for coming. There's more material on this than we could say, but take a look at When Harry Met Sally. I, I've done some of this, some work on homosexuality in my biblical ethics book. I think you received that, or at least it's on sale. You could get a free copy of uh, a little book for new philosophers, so come up to the front and grab one, and God bless you, and we'll see you around for this conference. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.